The mutual fund industry has been built, in a sense, on witchcraft. That quip is from John Bogle's 1999 book, Common Sense on Mutual Funds. Bogle had a way with words, just as he had a way of seeing the financial industry. He chafed at the idea that active managers of traditional mutual funds possessed an alchemical power to beat the market. Instead, Bogle believed that the only power fund managers actually had was to do worse than the market as a whole and to charge investors a whole lot for the courtesy of the fund's poor performance. So instead, in 1975, John Bogle founded the Vanguard Group and pioneered the Index Fund, where retail investors are more or less guaranteed overall market returns or losses because index funds invest across entire markets and crucially at very low cost. Or as Bogle put it, quote, don't look for the needle in the haystack, just buy the haystack. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Almost 50 years later, Vanguard now manages more than $7.7 trillion in assets. It is second only to one other company, BlackRock Incorporated, which manages more than $8.5 trillion in assets. Then comes State Street and Fidelity, two other major mutual fund companies who have approximately $4 trillion under management each. But taken together, our guest today says these four companies control 25% of all the stock of every publicly traded company in the United States. Then there are the private equity firms. It's hard to tell who their investors are, and they successfully avoid regulation, all while taking over companies and withdrawing them from the public eye entirely. In this category of the kings of concentration, we have KKR, Apollo, Blackstone, not to be confused with BlackRock, and Carlyle, which together have more than $2.7 trillion in assets. And our guest says that private equity controls 15 to 20 percent of the overall economy. So together, index funds and private equity firms have amassed an unprecedented concentration of power. John Coates says they are shaping corporate America and therefore the American economy. Coates is the deputy dean of Harvard Law School and former general counsel at the Securities and Exchange Commission. He writes about this problem in a forthcoming book titled The Problem of Twelve, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything. John Coates, welcome back to On Point. Great to be here, Magna. Okay, so anytime we begin with the claim of harm being caused to the American people or, and or the American economy, I like to provide evidence first. <laughs> so what is your evidence of harm when it comes to this concentration of power between index funds and private equity firms? So harm in a direct financial sense is actually not something that I think is occurring, at least for the index funds. Um, they do a very good job, as you outlined at the outset, of investing for millions of Americans for the long term at a very low cost. The harm is something that's incipient and political. They've done so well. They've grown so large. They continue to grow, and they continue to grow faster as they get larger because what they do really benefits from scale. 
the result of it is that they're accumulating not simply financial assets and performing a financial service, but they're accumulating direct control of companies. And they're having an influence on the way companies function. Um, now, you can debate, as with most things in politics, whether that influence is good or bad, but what is indisputable is that it's a very small number of people exerting that influence. And to okay. me, that's the harm, the incipient harm of index funds. The incipient harm. of Correct. Okay, of index funds. I, I want to emphasize that index funds and private equity are very, very different investment vehicles, right? And so uh, we're going to talk uh, about their major differences a little bit later, because on that point, I'm going to I'm going to press you a bit more on um, why maybe private equity is potentially worse than index funds. Um, but I wanted to just underscore that. Now, to to explain a little bit more about what you just said, well, how how are how are is any major investor that controls a lot of shares in a company directly having an impact on the operation of that company? It's not through you know. Ch- direct business decisions, but it's rather through being able to influence who's on the board of a corporation? Yes, that's the principal way. Um, uh, example number one that that uh, is fairly well known now, but worth repeating, um, uh, two years ago, roughly, a tiny little hedge fund called Engine Number One proposed to put four new people on the Exxon board. Two of them attached to the sustainable energy movement, not something that Exxon was traditionally known for. And engine number one's principal talking point was that Exxon needed to do more to transition to a carbon neutral economy. Again, not something that Exxon had been a leader in. Um, The reason that that tiny little hedge fund succeeded in getting three of those people elected, in fact, on the Exxon board, is because BlackRock Vanguard, State Street, voted with that hedge fund. They were the ones that tipped the vote over the necessary amount to get those directors elected against against the resistance of Exxon itself and their armies of lawyers and advisors. Uh, it was a shock, I think, to Exxon. It certainly was a great surprise to the financial markets. And with those people now on the Exxon board, Exxon's behavior has changed now. Teasing that out exactly is hard, um, but they have definitely pivoted in the last couple of years to talking about carbon sequestration, all kinds of ways in which they're sounding at least a lot more friendly to the idea of a transition to a carbon neutral economy. So that's an example. Mm. So um, this is an example that we talked about actually when we had you back on the show what, in 2018. No, actually, maybe it was bef- that we had you on the show before the Exxon example came up. But you've been writing about this for a long time, so I'm getting my dates confused. Forgive me about that. Um, but as far as I can tell, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, but the Exxon example seems to be a pretty unique one. I had difficulty finding, um, you know, a, a, a critical mass of other examples that would convince me that uh, – that Vanguard and Fidelity and BlackRock are sort of behaving in a more activist way when it comes to selecting board members for the companies they own. Well, it's true that efforts like the Exxon board proxy fight are rare. They're just rare generally. And I don't think index funds have themselves increased the number. Um, But to give you another channel of influence that I think they themselves are clear about in their own disclosures, um, 
every time a major company wants to do a merger, they typically need a shareholder vote, an approval. Um, there are hundreds of those, if not thousands, uh, every couple of years. Um, Vanguard itself reports having participated in 7,500 merger votes over a couple of year span. And in doing that, they voted no 600 times. That's a significant check on how those companies are governed, how they're functioning. The inability of management to get a merger transaction done unless the big four agree is a major way in which they can exert influence. And of course, in anticipation of future M&A, merger and acquisition activity, the managers of every company knows they have to maintain good relations with the big four. Um, mm. I'll take another example just to illustrate, um, again, on a different dimension. State Street is quite proud of their engagement on the topic of gender diversity and uh, reports routinely engaging thousands of companies about whether their, their boards are sufficiently diverse as a gender matter. And that 43% of the time that they talk to them, the companies respond by either adding a female director or committing to do so. So that's another type of influence. Um, again, a different type of influence, different channel. Um, I don't think that's going to change capitalism as we know it, but it is a way in which these companies are forced to do things they would not otherwise be doing. Okay. So I guess what you're saying is when it comes to the index funds, and again, we will talk about private equity for sure, um, that what you're, what you're asserting here is that even though index funds are by definition, the fund itself is passively managed most of the time, right? Which is why they're index funds. They are being more active in their influence on the corporations held within those funds. I think that's right. I think their own clients and customers want them to be to some significant extent. They're marketing themselves to some extent as being responsible stewards of the money they control. And part of that is not simply remaining totally passive and ignoring what companies are doing, but in fact using the voting power they've accumulated in ways that they think they can defend and mm. articulate. Now, it, one other proof of their influence, just by the way, you asked for evidence, is that um, the political system has already reacted. So last summer, the Senate, 20-some uh, Republicans introduced a bill to take away all their voting power, which <laughs> wouldn't happen if what they were doing was um, benign and unimportant. Mm. From well, their, from their perspective. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say there's a difference between benign and unimportant, right? Yes. <laughs> and as for my insistence on evidence, you are a very sharp legal mind, Professor Coates. So you know that you, a case, your case can't be made without offering of evidence here. So, um, so uh, the fact is, whether or not the examples that you provided listeners here as evidence of, you know, activist uh, index funds... Um, 
you do make the unassailable point that the percentage of corporations uh, and, and publicly shared, publicly traded stocks owned by these index funds is huge. It is very, very large. So when we come back, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about what the problem is with uh, the small number of private equity firms that we mentioned at the top of the show and then get a little deeper into, OK, if there's a dilemma here, can it be solved? So we'll be right back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash On Point today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and John Coates is with us today. His book is The Problem of Twelve, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything. Now, Professor Coates, you were also former counsel at the SEC, so you know better than almost anyone how private equity presents a different set of problems, right? You, you said a little bit earlier, uh, or actually you told our producer earlier, that you estimate that private equity might control 15 to 20 percent um, of the economy. So A, check me on that. And B, how are we to know that if, uh, by definition, private equity can avoid a lot of regulatory scrutiny? Number, that number is right, um, at least close to, to right. The reason we know that is that while um, private equity has structured itself very carefully to avoid as many regulations as possible, um, many of them are ironically themselves publicly held companies, the advisory businesses, not the companies they control, but the, the KKR's advisory business, that's a public company. So they have to report some information about their total scale and you just take that information plus some private industry statistics that are put out um, by consulting firms and you compare that to what the Fed reports about the size of the economy and how much of it is owned by corporations and that's where you get the 15 to 20% number. And, and I'll note that's been growing at a very mm. fast pace, much faster than the overall economy for the last 25 years, just as with index uh, funds. Okay. So they're owning more then of the economy with every passing year. Correct. They're, they're, okay. they're right. The trend is in a direction and that's to me why they, 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 they also pose a problem of 12. Okay. So, by the way, we should say the problem of 12 is a phrase that has its origins not in your book. You're using that as a title. Why 12? I, 
it's a it's a nice number. <laughs> it's, a, it's a notional number that captures the idea of 12 people sitting in a room. That's about the size of a typical board. There were 12 disciples. I'm sure there are other examples. It's just the idea okay. of a, a small group of people. Okay, got it. So, but of course, the difference, one of the biggest differences between the index funds that we were talking about versus private equity is that um, index funds... Are they have they are regulated by the SEC? Therefore, there is some degree of transparency that's uh, required by by the government. Whereas for private equity firms, I'm not even sure there's any way for us to know who who are the investors in those firms. That's right. Private equity firms go around raising money from, and they're careful about this from either very wealthy individuals, but more actually from other institutions, pension funds, endowments, sovereign wealth funds and the like. And because they're only raising money from what the law treats as large, sophisticated investors, they're able to not have to file reports about their fundraising, about their funds mostly for the most part, um, the identity of their investors. And ironically, a lot of those investors are, in fact, ultimately millions of, of, of individuals, but those individuals are pensioners and workers whose money is in being, being invested on their behalf uh, without their knowing about it. And, and we don't know about it as members of the public either. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Because then, the, the, then that's another major difference between the index funds and private equity. Because index funds, as Bogle created them, the late now John Bogle created them in 1975, the idea was, well, this fund is just going to take the S&P, for example, or the Dow or any other index and just invest in every company in, the, in that index uh, and buy and hold index funds are in it for the long run, which is different than how I understand private equity works. Private equity, A, buys an entire company most of the time, pulls it out of the public view by, by turning it private, uh, and then doesn't really have an interest in managing it for the long term, right? That's right. The, the traditional private equity model, which sort of originated in the go-go years of the 80s, was to buy um, strip, meaning cut a lot of costs, um, use the increase in cash flow to pay down the debt they used to borrow to buy the company to begin with, and then eventually sell it. Um, traditionally, they sold it back into the public market. That was the way they functioned, sort of temporary um, re-engineers of companies, but then returning to the public market. That's changed. And over the last 25 years, not only has the industry grown, but the typical exit for a private equity ownership is to another private equity fund. So they not only are taken over by private equity, they're run for a five-year, 10-year period, and then they're sold on to some other um, non-disclosing private equity fund to run for another five to 10 years. So companies are continually being flipped uh, from one to another. Mm, okay, so we have a couple examples uh, of the various sectors in which private equity is investing, or I should say more accurately, buying companies outright. Uh, for example, here is Shirley Smith. She's a former employee at Art Van Furniture in Detroit and also a leader uh, with, the, with the group United for Respect. And she appeared at a 2021 
Senate subcommittee hearing uh, talking about how uh, Art Van Furniture was taken over by a private equity firm called T.H. Lee in 2017 and how the business completely changed under T.H. Lee's leadership. The first thing they did was sold the real estate, made back the money that they spent buying the company, and then they started destroying the company. They got rid of all of our top leadership and brought in, as I said, people that didn't know the company, didn't know the furniture industry at all. They hired the worst CEO, uh, someone that was uh, rated the worst CEO in the nation in 2016 to run the company. And some could say he didn't do his job, but I'll say that he did his job very well. He was hired to run his company out of business, and that's what he did. So that's Shirley Smith, a former employee at Art Van Furniture, uh, at a 2021 Senate subcommittee hearing. Well, here's Peggy Malone. Uh, she also appeared at a 2021, probably the same 2021 Senate uh, hearing on private equity. And she's talking about the impact that a private equity firm had in healthcare. And this is a sector that private equity has been moving into rather aggressively over the past several years. Malone is a nurse at Crozer Chester Medical Center in Pennsylvania, and she talked about the changes that happened in her hospital since private equity took over. They have destroyed our hospital. They have destroyed the fiber of what we are as healthcare professionals. Prospect Medical Holdings, which has 17 hospitals across the country, they were given $173 million of COVID relief money, none of which we have seen in the hospitals. We take care of patients every day. And I understand some of you are very uh, pro-private equity. Well, I'm going to tell you that it wasn't Families were not allowed in the hospital. You did not see what was going on in there during this pandemic. So, Professor Coates, what I wonder is, in the book, aside from the fact that um, index funds and private equity are amassing more and more ownership and therefore power uh, in corporate America, they seem to be so different to me that I'm not sure they belong in the same book. I mean, can, can you tell me why you, you lumped them together? Yeah, um, I, it's a fair point. They, they're, they are very different in the way they function. The way they share something, though, is they're new in how important they are in becoming. They're both asset management um, industries. They, they manage other people's money. And they, I think, are growing and concentrating so rapidly that that – Separate from your view about any particular buyout or index fund investment, they represent a threat to our overall system of democracy and capitalism and regulated capitalism because of their sheer scale. Um, It's one thing for um, there to be fights about particular um, acquisitions and and mistakes maybe. PE thrives on risk. They push the risk when they take over companies by borrowing a lot. And that forces them to get really tough about some decisions and sometimes they get it wrong. Now, you can have, again, fights about that on a particular company. That's one thing. But it's another thing to say they're taking over 20% of the entire economy and running it that way. And, mm-hmm. and doing it at a scale where the biggest of them is getting bigger, faster, than the smaller ones. 
You point out a tension, though, in uh, American history that's playing out also through this issue. And that is the tension between capitalism, which always sort of yearns towards scale, right? And the idea of American democracy, which is uh, um, a fairer distribution of power, right? So you also point out in the book that this has happened before, that the, the tension between capitalism um, and small-D democracy um, has, has reached a breaking point, which might be instructive for how we might think about the, uh, the problem of 12 as you define it today. So take us back in time a little bit to, what, the late 19th century through, through the Depression. What was the, uh, the problem of 12 back then? Yeah, we, we, the U.S. has gone through cycles of concentration of capital, followed by political and legal restrictions. So late 19th century, actually there were long forgotten now, insurance companies started taking over the economy. They were allowed at the time to buy stock of companies. They did. They started buying lots of stock of lots of companies. And they got to a scale that triggered a massive political reaction resulting in um, pretty much state by state, insurance companies now were either forbidden from owning stock or are greatly limited in how much stock of other kinds of businesses they can own. And so that's what's taken insurance out of the market that index funds and private equity now are coming into. We had the same experience with banks earlier uh, as well as subsequently at different times. And, and even today, even though banks are blamed for a lot of things appropriately, one thing that you can't say about them is that they control other businesses. They're forbidden largely from taking over um, healthcare or uh, furniture makers. Mm. But in the, in the book, you point out that when it crosses over from uh, an economic problem to a, to um, a political problem because the consolidated power of these corporations in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. Uh, and especially after the Depression, um, really undermined the public's confidence in the legitimacy of American business, right? And it was a governmental reaction to that lack of confidence that really gave us the regulatory regime we've had in the subsequent 100 years. I mean, you point out some uh, congressional investigations supervised by Ferdinand Pecora in 1932 to 34. Who called? Uh, who called the um, the concentration of of economic power in the hands of a few incomparably the greatest reach of power in private hands in our entire history? And thereafter comes the SEC. That's right. The Securities and Exchange Commission, which I happily worked for um, a couple of years ago, and all of the laws that it administers are the product of that earlier political fight slash reaction to. The earlier problem of twelve uh, that led up to the to the uh, Great Depression, it it you know it coincided. I don't think coincidentally with the Great Depression, a period in which the entirety of capitalism was called into question, when so many people had so little wealth and so little prospect of developing wealth that most of the country thought seriously about socialism as an alternative. The response ultimately was, as we all know, the New Deal, which was heavy regulation, protection for labor, but also continuation of capitalism. And protecting that blend, I think the securities disclosure rules that large businesses were required to follow is a big piece of that. 
That's partly why I think private equity is so troubling. It's displacing that transparent system of ownership of business that helped create a sense of confidence that post-dated World War II and, and, and continued on for the last 50 to 100 years. Now, there are lots of problems with the way that system has evolved over time, lots of fights, but by and large, it has delivered a great deal of wealth to a great number of people. And I worry that if more and more of the economy is completely dark to the American public, there will be a rise in further populist pressures to do something radical, whether it's uh, mm. in, in the right direction or the left direction, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I, you're going to have to forgive me for being a stickler about this. When you say completely dark, that's because of private equity, whereas the influence exerted by the index funds isn't necessarily as uh, dar- in the dark, right? Because they are regulated by the SEC. That's right. Private equity is much darker, if you will. There's virtually <laughs> no information coming out of the portfolio companies that they control other than incidental investigation by journalists and the like uh, or at congressional hearings. Um, index funds, I will say, are much more transparent about what they do. They disclose their votes, um, for example. So that's how we know about the things I was talking about earlier. They are, however, a little still opaque about how they go about developing the positions they take on our behalf with our money. So to earlier, um, you, I was giving examples. I'll give one more. In the recent labor fights involving Starbucks, there was a shareholder resolution put forward that was voted on recently. And here the index funds split. State Street supported the resolution, which called for Starbucks to get an independent assessment of the labor practices at Starbucks. BlackRock and Vanguard voted against that. In the end, it passed, so now Starbucks is going to have to cope with the fact that most of their shareholders have told them to do something. Um, But what's interesting to me is that it's difficult, if not impossible, if you went back to January, February, to get any information out of the index funds about how they were thinking about that upcoming vote. They weren't real-time communicating with their own investors about the issues that labor struggles raise at a company like Starbucks. So private equity, I agree, darker, um, more troubling, uh, in need of greater disclosure, in my opinion. Index funds, better, but still, they have some work to do, too, in the disclosures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to be clear about that Starbucks examples, uh, excuse me, example, uh, it was regarding a shareholder resolution that, that forced Starbucks to, in the words of the resolution, to um, acknowledge its its own belief in human rights, uh, and so therefore allowing uh, employees to to unionize, and that that's was what the what the split was over. Um, we've got to take a quick break in about fifteen or twenty seconds here, Professor Coates. I just want to know: is it common practice for um, people in a or, or owners in a shareholder uh, vote or board resolution to publicly talk about their positions before taking the vote? Uh, No, but that's fine when it's your money. When it's other people's money and you're voting for them, that's where I think they should do more ahead of time. Mm. Well, John Coates joins us today. His book is The Problem of 12. We'll talk about some solutions to the problem when we come back. This is On Point.
The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And just a quick heads up on a show we're working on for later this week. The number of students in rural America going on to college in their communities has dropped significantly. In some states like West Virginia and Louisiana, the numbers are down by more than 30 percent. So we're going to do a show exploring why that is and what impact that's happening, having on those various states and communities. So we want to hear from you. If you live in a rural area or a rural state, do you or someone you know, a family member, did you decide to go to college elsewhere uh, or maybe not even pursue college at all? We want to understand what drove your decisions uh, and what impact, positive or negative, that it's had on your life. And if you live in a community that had a rural college or institution of higher education that closed for any reason, we want to know what impact that had on the community. So you can tell us your story through the On Point Vox Pop app. If you don't already have it, go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 617 353 So the change or the reduction in the number of people in rural communities going on uh, to college is what we're going to focus on later this week. Today, we're speaking to John Coates. His new book is The Problem of Twelve, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything. And Professor Coates, uh, we're getting some reaction, or quite a bit of reaction, actually, to uh, to your thesis here. And even we received a call from Karen, who lives in Milwaukee, and she said to us that Mr. Coates seems to be making the case that the fact that index funds have all this power is a bad thing. And every example that's been brought up is an example of good things that need to happen to control the giant corporations. What's your response to that, Professor? Well, that's part of why I brought up the Starbucks example, which maybe came in after her call. Um, The index funds do sometimes lean in directions that personally I think are great, um, but sometimes they don't. So Vanguard, for example, recently was reported by Morningstar as having voted against every non-climate environmental resolution that was up for a vote this spring. Um, there's a resistance among the index funds to asking companies like Exxon and Apple and so on to disclose their own political activity, which has grown a lot over the last 20 years at the corporate level. Um, So there are things that I agree with the index funds about. There are things that I disagree. What's troubling to me is that they're not quite as open as they should be, in my view, uh, and certainly could be, about how they come to those decisions and then allow their own investors to participate. Well, also, good is uh, in the eye of the beholder, right? Good or bad things are definitely subjective evaluations. Uh, This might irk Karen a little bit, but the same control that uh, that happened in the, the Exxon case could happen, say, index funds voting uh, for board members who might support uh, a company's decision to remove, 
I don't know, uh, insurance coverage for a birth control, right? It can work either way. Correct. Power is power. Concentrated power is concentrated power. And the fact that the current leadership at any given time might be somebody that you agree with doesn't mean that they'll stay that way. BlackRock in particular, since Exxon, has backed away from some of its more climate-forward um, approaches, in part because of the criticism it received from, among others, Republican state governors. So it's already a political battle going back and forth. And my only point really is not that it's good or bad, ultimately, but rather that it is important and it's one that investors largely don't know about and they need to. There's an irony here, which is, if you don't mind, you know, people choose index funds because they're safe. Put your money there <laughs> yeah. and then ignore them. Well, sorry, guys, you got to pay attention because what they're doing on the political side can be just as important as what they're doing on the financial side. Hmm. Well, what I wonder is uh, that the problem is the pro the true problem, not necessarily the concentration, but the power that that concentration gives that may be exploited, perhaps not by the fund managers themselves, who you know are technically voted uh, into into power at the fund by the fund's millions of um, of shareholders. We can come back to that in a minute. But could the problem actually be? Uh, activist shareholders themselves, who you, you talked about engine number one in the Exxon case. I mean, in other cases, there might be other activist shareholders that say that see this concentration amongst the index funds and just have to go to, you know, a couple of board members at Vanguard or BlackRock to have an impact. Is it activism overall? That's the issue. Yeah. So I, it's an interesting question. I, I do think it's true that the index fund growth and their concentration of ownership has made activism, in some sense, easier. Engine number one knew they only had to convince the people at these index funds, plus a few other shareholders, to get to a majority. That's very different than the world 25 years ago when the same contest would have needed to convince hundreds, if not thousands, of different uh, people to go along with it. So the concentration means it's easier for any type of activist, whatever their perspective, to exert control if they can flip the switch, so to speak, uh, at the index fund complex. Mm. A little earlier, as we move towards talking about solutions, you said that uh, like in the 1930s, what we're seeing now is government paying attention to this problem of concentration. Um, and uh, and so therefore, if government's paying attention, that perhaps in and of itself is evidence uh, of a problem. Although I would say sometimes that because of politics, uh, politicians may pay attention to problems that don't exactly exist, don't actually exist. Um, they're just seeking for a way to advance their political uh, point of view. But I will take your point for now that the recent activity, both on scrutiny of private equity and scrutiny of index funds, is indicative of something. So... For example, here is a moment from uh, 2022 when, as you had mentioned, Professor Coates, a group of U.S. senators, Republicans, introduced a bill called the Investor Democracy is Expected, or Index Act. And it was aimed at controlling how index funds could, could vote in corporate shareholder meetings. So here's former Pennsylvania Republican Senator Patrick Toomey, who co-sponsored the Index Act, at a Senate Banking Committee hearing in June 2022. Congress needs to address the problems of the largest asset managers voting other people's shares and their consolidation of corporate voting power. In my view, 
solution is to return voting power to the true investors in a company, the people who put their own money at risk. The Index Act requires any asset manager of a passive index fund with more than 1% of a company's voting shares to vote those shares in accordance with the instructions of the fund's investors, not at the discretion of the asset manager. Or they could choose to not vote at all. Now, John Coates, you were at that same Senate hearing, uh, banking hearing. You testified as well. What do you think of the idea of uh, the Index Act? Well, uh, you could listeners can find great, great, uh, me going on in great length about this there, but the bottom line (laughs) is that it's a bad idea. Uh, It's a bad idea because the practical effect of that law as written, if it were approved, would be effectively to take away the votes from the index funds. And while you, you know, it might sound like I'm worried about them and therefore why, why not take away their votes, if you take away their votes, then the remaining shareholders in effect get more power. And it would really distort the relationship between ownership and influence to take out 25, 30 growing percentage of the votes altogether. A better solution is one that the index complexes themselves, at least three of them, uh, Fidelity I haven't seen doing this yet, but the others, are starting to ask their investors not for vote instructions because as a practical matter, that's not realistic. There are 4,000 plus companies. There's shareholder resolutions at many of them every year. There's no way that most Americans are going to be paying attention to that much uh, detail. But they're asking instead for policies. Tell us which policy you want us to follow. And then they've got a little family of policies that you can go look up on a website. I think it's going to take time to work out how these um, kind sort of pass-throughs are going to work, a lot of um, uh, risk of slippage in the details, I will say. I think the families need to be held, uh, their feet need to be held to the fire to make sure they do this in a, in a real and honest way. I think that's a better approach than the one that the, uh, the uh, Senate bill included. You know, Professor Coates, as I was uh, preparing for this show today, uh, I was reading through all the notes that um, my producer, Claire Donnelly, gave to me after she spoke with you. And this idea came up in, in, um, in the notes. And I will admit to you, Professor, that in the margins, I wrote, sounds like a super terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> because, first of all, we're talking about, you know, millions of potential investors having their say, uh, or tell it, telling the index fund what to do. And second of all, how can that do anything but introduce more politics into this problem of concentration? Well, you know, We are in a moment politically where politics has become a kind of dirty word because of how fraught and unpleasant it has felt over the last, whatever, six years. Um, But actually, politics is just another way of saying democracy. And if we want to hold on to our democracy, we have to be prepared to get to the issues and to think about them and to use the money that we are accumulating for our retirement and the power that that conveys through ownership uh, to have the influence that we want. Otherwise, somebody's going to do it for us. And, you know, okay. And, and to some extent, people will do that. I mean, I think practically what will happen is that individuals won't all individually come up with, you know, 10 million different ideas about how to run companies. There will be 
a small number of approaches, and they're going to range across different choices um, on different issues, and people are then going to pick those policies. Uh, and those policies then are going to guide the index funds more than they have been in the past. So yeah, my concern. Can I just jump in here? Because yeah. my concern is is that this leads to an oversimplification of guidance to the index funds, because uh, which which uh, works against the whole idea of what an index fund is. As you pointed out, some of these funds are investing in thousands of companies, and as an individual investor oneself, a person might think, well, for the companies in this sector, I would advise the fund do do X, right? Make certain climate choices. In companies in healthcare, I'd advise something else. I mean, it's. I think people are much more diverse in their personal opinions and personal values than a slate of one individual slate of values might suggest. Like, for example, you pointed out to us that BlackRock, uh, in terms of its choices of values to follow is including uh, the U.S. Catholic bishops because they've formulated a voting policy. Well, what if someone agrees with part of what the bishops advise, but disagrees with another part? Do you see the risk I'm talking about of oversimplification? Well, so I think that's inherent to, again, democracy. To go from, you know, again, 300 million people, 200 million voters, go from 200 million different worldviews to choosing a law in any given moment for Congress involves simplification. That's what the parties do. They can be very frustrating. We're often frustrated with the soundbite simplifications of politicians, but that is the way in which we function as a democracy. And I think the same thing in a different way could be happening on the corporate side. Now, just to illustrate, I don't, again, think that um, BlackRock is going to follow the view of each individual shareholder on each individual vote. I think the likely outcome is they're going to have greener or browner, if you will, on climate uh, policies to follow. They'll look at how many of their investors choose one or the other, and then they'll take that into account in how they vote overall. They will probably end up um, no longer voting as monolithically. They'll probably vote in different ways, they can do that. They can vote some shares one way and other shares a different way, which will effectively represent then the perspective of their own customers. And I think that in the end will alleviate the fear that Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, all by himself, off in a room with 11 other people, are determining the future of the economy. Because if that happens consistently over time, I think the index funds will get blown up. And I think they're great. Mm. I, like So for me, it's worth accepting a little bit of political mess in order to preserve what is a very effective financial institution. Ah, okay. Interesting. Because you had also uh, said that we could maybe potentially head towards a world where um, these the index funds formulate voting policies based on, you know, what people submit to them. And and you, you, you told our producer that you predict that Trump and Trump supporters could come up with a voting policy. And so suddenly our political battles would now spill over into this investment arena, which really sends a chill down my spine uh, that politics becomes the primary means of decision-making versus just the fiduciary responsibility that the managers of the funds have 
to their investors. But before we run out of time, uh, Professor Coates, I don't want to ignore private equity, obviously, because we talked about the extent of its influence and power. What should be changed or what could be done to make what private equity does uh, more transparent or less consequential to the operational operation of the American economy as a whole? Yeah, I may be sounding like a broken record here because I worked at the SEC. My solution is often <laughs> more disclosure, and that's what I think. Now, I think for private equity, the challenge is that they're raising money from, as I mentioned, say, pension funds. The pension funds then are in between the ultimate individuals who they're supposedly representing in their investment and the private equity folks. I think the law needs to adapt to that reality and require there to be up and down the chain reporting at least about the basic impacts of how private equity is functioning. So if it's true that it's having a terrible effect on the healthcare industry, as some people really believe, I think more disclosure about that would be appropriate from the private equity folks out to their pension fund investor um, first layer and then by the pension fund folks out to their pensioners, who obviously are often directly affected by healthcare outcomes. So disclosure up and down that chain would do a lot, I think, to restore the legitimacy of that industry. Uh, it's, it's not just as your experience as the S from being in the SEC, but my preference as a journalist is more disclosure as well. I think that's good for everyone. Sunlight, indeed. Well, John Coates' new book is The Problem of Twelve, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything. Professor Coates, it was great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>